Hi, I'm Michael Scott. We're here at the iLab tonight in the Startup Secret Series to talk about value propositions. And one of the challenges of starting a company is to figure out whether you've got an idea that's really worth building a business around. So we talk about how to define a value proposition, how to evaluate it, and then how to build on it. And I think what you'll enjoy most about this series is that we go from qualitative to quantitative to really assess whether you've got something that's going to make it. For those of you who haven't attended any of these sessions before, the big premise behind this was something extremely simple, which is, unfortunately, when I started life as a young entrepreneur in my teens, I didn't have anybody telling me all the things that I was about to screw up. And I screwed a lot of things up, and I've got a lot of scar tissue. And I wished that somebody had been able to say to me, hey, here are some of the things you should think about before you start plowing into building your product and taking it to market and figuring out how you're going to sell it and so forth. So this series is really about trying to give you some unfair competitive advantage, as I describe it. Some unfair advantage in having that advice before you crash into the wall and figure out all the turns that you could have avoided. So before I go any further, let me introduce some of the people who are going to be talking to you this evening. We've got uh, folks from Aperion here. Uh, we've got Akiban here, David McFarlane, our CEO. Um, we've got Discuss in the form of, of Rick Phillips. So Discuss is a, an, a, an investment that's actually based on the West Coast. So Rick is the partner behind that investment. He's going to bring that case study to life. Uh, and then Alok has very kindly brought a not-for-profit example, uh, Diagnostics for All, into the mix. Because a lot of people last session told me that they'd like to hear about the not-for-profit world and how would we relate it to that. So uh, thanks for that feedback. And thanks for Alok for being so responsive. My partner, Carmichael, also helped out there. And last but not least, uh, in fact, really sort of the feature for this evening is a company that's now uh, number two in the Inc. 500 fastest growing software companies and uh, a great example of a local company, Utest. So, Duran, if you wouldn't mind standing up just to introduce yourself and uh, your team briefly. So, nice to meet you. I'm Duran. I'm the CEO and co-founder. Uh, we're four years old. Uh, I have two members of the executive management team. One is uh, Matt Johnson, who's the CMO, which manages <coughs> in our community, when we talk a little bit about our business. And Fumi, who is a CTO, who manages all the technology and development. Nice, nice to be here. Let's make sure we've given those up so you guys have got them. Great, well, welcome. OK, so our agenda for tonight is a really simple one. We want to help you define a value prop. We also want you to, to understand how you would evaluate it, and then get into, at the end, some examples on how you build them. But throughout this, in order to keep it live, I'm actually going to bring in some of the uh, case studies from the various different companies that you've got here this evening. So let's jump in and start right where you hopefully will end up. In other words, with what should a value proposition look like? And you might say, well, why am I starting at the end? And I think it's because you need to know where you're headed in this case. Otherwise, this session is going to be tough. So the typical form of a value prop is to define what you do uniquely well for who. That's a simple way of putting it. Uh, and this is going to be our template this evening. We're going to talk about four, what target customers who are dissatisfied with what current solution or alternative that's out there. Your product is providing some differentiated uh, problem-solving capability that, unlike everything else out there, is doing something unique or different. Uh, don't worry about taking this template down. I'll just tell you right now, you can get all of the slides up at mjscock.com. So they're all up there, all the templates and everything else, and you can download this. So. Um, don't feel like you have to capture this. But I'm putting this up here so you know what we're headed towards. 
This is what the typical form of a value proposition looks like. And you might say, well, why does it look like this? But as you come through the, the course of this evening, I think you'll get a pretty good sense of it. So I'm going to start off by um, making uh, an example of one of the companies that we have this evening, and that's Aperion. Um, and uh, Brian, if, if you want to jump in at any point, please do if I get this wrong. But uh, here's what was the uh, background to Aperion. How many of you have mobile phones? The question is, who doesn't actually now, I think, <laughs> these days? Um, well, now, uh, if any of you carry those into work, you probably just expect them to work with your email at work and your calendars at work and so forth. However, you probably carry in there also photos and you know, personal information, et cetera, that you don't want to get confused with the corporate information. Turns out that's a big problem for the Fortune 1000 uh, and for large enterprises around the world. And so Aperion tackled that, and that was the first part of their uh, focus, was to go after mobile enterprises. And they found that people who were trying to deliver apps to their employees were struggling because they couldn't issue them with Blackberries anymore. Uh, people would walk in with iPhones or iPads or Android devices, and they wanted to use the apps on those devices. And so what they did was they built this thing called an Enterprise Apps Services Environment, Ease for short, cute name, uh, that provided a way for users to securely access the apps and information that were in the enterprise, but without losing all their personal stuff or the device being taken over by the enterprise. And at the end of the day, they figured out that the way they needed to do this was different to the way people had done it in the past. And there was a, a, a way that was done in the past called mobile device management, where basically the enterprise would take over the device. They'd grab control of it, they'd lock it down, they had the ability to wipe it if anything went wrong. But the trouble is that meant wiping everything. So you would lose your own personal information as well. Uh, and also, it was done in a very typical way, which is by putting a, an expensive piece of hardware or, or capabilities behind the firewall in the enterprise. Uh, and that was a, a difficult thing to implement. So what uh, Aperion did was, unlike that, that approach, they built this in the cloud, and they made it really simple for people to just walk in without having to do anything special, uh, just effectively register uh, once, and then immediately get access to the corporate information and applications. So did I miss anything, Brian? Just if I could add two minutes of color to it, uh, lest you think the company the founder was that smart that he said, I'm going to do this when he started the company three years ago, he actually kind of stumbled onto it. So Aperion is actually kind of a company with two different lives. Uh, when it was started back three years ago, if, if you put the founder who's not here tonight under truth Jim, he'd probably say he was building a lifestyle company. He was going to build apps for enterprises and, and, and kind of do that and make a lot of money and have a lot of fun doing it. But the real challenge became when these, app, these companies were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these apps, they were saying to themselves, well, we don't want to put that in the iTunes app store. What other way can we get these to our employees, which really forced the company to design what, what Michael talked about, the, the enterprise app services environment, which is what the company is selling today. So since I've been with the company about a year and a half ago, we've successfully made the transition from the app development company to a company that's actually selling subscription service that Michael's talking about here. But I think the point there is, is that it's not necessarily day one, you don't, you don't necessarily have that value prop in your mind. We kind of evolved into it, and, 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 and that's, that's what the business is doing today. Great. And I'm going to ask you for more color as we go through this. That's just a brief introduction to appearance. Thank you, Brian. By the way, lest you think Brian is our sales guy or our marketing guy, He's actually our CFO. So but that's we're what all I, sales guys in these companies. I was about to say. That's the wonderful thing about startups is that everybody's a sales guy. 
So one of the things that's interesting about the appearing example is exactly what Brian said, is it's probably a good case study in that this wasn't where the company started. They evolved from actually meeting a very different customer need, which was just to build the apps themselves, to ultimately meeting the need of how do you deploy and manage those apps. And I think a lot of you will probably go through that journey. So as we go into this, I'm now going to try to help you figure out how might you take that journey, how might you do it effectively, and how might you define your value prop as tightly as possible, as early as possible, and then iterate it. And in the real world, by the way, really what happens is you iterate a lot to get the, the value prop more refined. So back to where might you start? Well, um, most people think in this you know, diagram that the obvious place to start is with the ideas. The, the real challenge is that ideas are exactly as I've depicted them here. They're free floating. I mean, I, unfortunately, you know, ideas are to a penny in our business. I mean, there are so many great ideas that never see the light of day. And one of the reasons they never see the light of the day is uh, because they're really not oriented towards solving some fundamental problem. So I would argue that the worst thing to do is to get carried away with an idea before you define what problem it is you're going to solve. And so I would argue for any one of you taking your idea and parking it until you can think about what's the problem space in which this idea really applies, and then get to work on what we're going to do now, which is talking about the development of the problem. So uh, for those of you who've seen me talk before, you'll know that I'm a self-professed horrible student. And so the way I learned was by creating mnemonics for everything. And so you'll find things like, in this case, four U's. It's not to say there are only four ways to describe problems, but it's my way of getting these things uh, into a simple form for you to remember. So the four U's are, I look for problems that are unworkable, that are unavoidable, that are urgent, and that are underserved. And we'll take those in a bit more detail. But if you can start to think about your idea around that framework, I think it'll really help to hone what it is you're going to do uniquely well. So let's start with unworkable. This is the most fun one. If something's broken, it needs fixing. And so the best kinds of problems that you can find are broken business problems, something like a broken business process. So can anybody describe to me an experience they've been having as a consumer which you feel is broken? You're getting a service from a, custom, a company that is broken or that is not great. Anybody give me an example of one? The new Apple Map. The new Apple Map. It's a great example, right? That is clearly broken. I mean, it's not working. And how much pain is that causing Apple right now? A lot. Who's benefiting? Bing. Map, a lot of people are benefiting by fixing that problem. And probably Apple's losing customers, they're losing revenue, et cetera. And the beauty of these examples is I bet you can all think of them. You know, th there's probably experiences in your everyday life in many regards that you're not happy with. This is the genesis of a potential opportunity when you find something like that. Now, obviously, if it's a one-off thing, it's not as interesting as if you think it's being repeated. But uh, I'm going to give you a real-world example now of one of our companies that actually has solved this problem for AT&T. So it turned out, I'm sure you'll remember this for those of you who bought iPhones in the early days, the onboarding process for the iPhone was so badly broken that people weren't activating their phones for days in some instances. And they were losing customers, and there was a tremendous challenge about it. It turned out the back end of that was a whole series of workflows to provision the, the phone through the carrier and get uh, the billing worked out through Apple. And that was a workflow, and it was a broken business process. And one of our companies called Active Endpoints actually went in and solved that problem for AT&T and got paid millions of dollars for it. 
And that's what I'm saying is the kind of opportunity you should be looking for. Obviously, if you're looking for consumer examples, I'll bring those up later. But they, even then, you'll find that there are similar opportunities. And if you can sense them, that's a great starting point. That's what I mean by unworkable. Now, the best way to measure it is if the consequence is genuinely costly or painful. So the examples we've been giving here, you, you end up having your customers uh, spending money they don't want. Uh, if they really get pissed off, you lose them. So losing customers or losing revenue is always the best example of something that's really broken. If it's just marginal, like somebody's sort of dissatisfied a bit, they'll live with it. You probably haven't really hit on a very painful or difficult problem. And, and that's the judgment I would try to use there. Ultimately, the, the phrase I have at the bottom of the slide is the one I like the best, which is, could you identify somebody who will get fired if this business problem doesn't get fixed? Because you know why that's good? Who will you go sell to? That person. I mean, they are going to become your best champion because their job is on the line unless they fix this. So if you can identify that person early on and work with them, not only will they probably champion you, but they'll also educate you as to how to fix the problem. And they'll uh, obviously shine a light on where all the pain is. So it's just an obvious set of things to think through uh, for this first way of defining a problem. Okay, that's the first you. Any questions on that before I move on? Okay. The second one is unavoidable. This is also one of my favorite ones because there are a lot of things that unfortunately you can't avoid in life. Death and taxes would be two good examples. Unfortunately, we just have to live with them. Taxes actually is a part of an opportunity because as a result of us all having to pay taxes, we all have to account for things. And to be in business, you've got to account for all your activities and be able to close the books and obviously comply with basic audit standards. So anybody in the accounting software business wasn't tackling a problem that was optional. They were tackling a problem that was necessary. And it's no accident that the first software companies that were really successful were in the accounting business because people had to do basic things like meet payroll and comply with audits and so forth. Well, it turns out regulations are constantly evolving, whether it's HIPAA or it's Basel II in, in financial services or healthcare. You could probably find plenty of these examples. Or if you're in the drug discovery business, complying with FDA process uh, to go through the process of getting your drugs obviously approved. That's a real process that people have to comply with. If you can find smart ways to do that, that help people, better collaboration over the internet, for example, in the process, or whatever it might be, you know you've got a real problem there because it's unavoidable. People can't get around it. They can't just skip FDA approval and take a drug to market. It doesn't work that way. So we look for those things. And um, when great entrepreneurs come to us with uh, opportunities that define new, um, if you like, solutions to these, we almost invariably see those turn into great companies. An example from our portfolio that might not be so obvious is a company called Reval, R-E-V-A-L. If you went and looked up Reval, you'd find they'd do something that was being done in the Fortune 5000 um, on spreadsheets. And it was accounting for, in this case, derivatives. What are derivatives, you might say? We don't need to go there tonight, except to say it's an instrument that people use to defer risk in their business. And of course, it turns out if you start taking instruments like derivatives and using them, you need to account for them because they cost you money. And it turned out they were complex. Uh, actually, derivatives are part of what brought the first financial crisis on because people weren't accounting for them properly. They are that complex. So it was a complex problem. It had a real need for accounting. And it turns out it was also regulated. So it, it was like the perfect mix of issues. And sure enough, this company has gone you know, very quickly from being a little startup to being a company that is now in registration to go public. 
And why? Because it's an unavoidable problem. Now, the consequences for them, which are really fun to, to share with you, are very real. If a company doesn't manage their derivatives, doesn't account for them, then an example in their case would be GE. GE had a $340 million uh, adjustment in their valuation as a result of not doing the right accounting for their derivatives. So they could measure in hundreds of millions of dollars the impact to some of their customers if they weren't in place. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for all those kinds of signals. And if you can find them in those um, early days of investigating your problem, you're probably onto something good. So any questions on unavoidable? Can anybody else think of any other unavoidable uh, problems that, that we have to deal with? Nope. Yep. Getting old. Getting old, yeah. Aging is very real. What does that open up as opportunities? I guess Medicare. Yep. Uh, Yep. Yeah, I think the aging population, baby boomers, etc., huge, huge opportunities as a result of that. Um, you know, I said there were two unavoidable things, death and taxes. Well, on the way to death is aging, and there's a lot of challenges with it. Speaking personally, yeah, lots of challenges. Okay, so thank you very much. Great example. On to the, f the uh, next U. This one is easy to skip over, uh, but important for startups. So. Why is urgency important for a startup? Can anybody tell me why, for a startup in particular, it's important that you find an urgent need? Go ahead. You probably have a pretty urgent need for revenue. So if you can match your urgent need with the customer's urgent need. Exactly. I mean, thank you. Because what happens in a startup is you only have one way you're going to go out of business. You run out of cash. And so unless you get revenue in fast, at some point, you're out of business. So you have an urgency. So if you have that urgency and your customer doesn't, you're in trouble. And the biggest thing I find with startups is that they have you know, a great vision, potentially, for what might be in the future if these three things happen. Well, guess what? If they're in your control that those three things happen, that's great. But if they're not, an example might be you're hoping for some change in you know, the platform or the environment or whatever it might be, it might never uh, play out in a timescale that actually enables you to build a business. So urgency is extremely important. And what I would say here is that this is not urgency in isolation. It's relative to other needs. That's the thing people miss. So what I mean by that is if you walk into a company with a proposition and you say, look, we've got the best way of solving this particular pain point for you, that may be true. And they may agree with you and say, yep, you're right. That's the best thing I've ever seen for this problem. But if it's number 42 on the list, do you think you're going to get their attention? No. And honestly, that's usually the challenge for a startup. There's one other reason why it's important for a startup. As an, a large company with a brand and with perhaps a relationship with an existing customer, you're going to have their attention from that existing relationship that allows you to, if you like, influence them. As a startup, you're the exact opposite. You are a pure risk to them. So even taking time to listen to your proposition is spending resource that they wouldn't otherwise intend to do. So you've actually got to have something, I would argue, that's in the top three of their priorities to get their attention. And if you hit on that, then they'll probably make time to listen to your proposition. And then obviously, if it is the best solution, they'll start paying attention to it. So just pay attention to this when you're thinking about how to define your problem. The last one actually needs a little bit of thought, and that is, you know, is this problem underserved? So 
let's talk about this in terms of dollars rather than marketplaces. Do you think that as a startup, when you walk into a company and you ask for them to buy into your product, that they have budget for you? Who thinks they do? Good. They never do. Guess what? You weren't even on the horizon, probably, when they did their budget a year before. The reality is most large enterprises, for example, budget 12 months in advance, and they start planning three months before that. So unless you were around 15 months before and had them thinking about you, when you walk in the door and you start to try to get them to pay attention to you, you're trying to take budget away from something else. So it's back to that prioritization. And what you really want to do, therefore, is find a way to compete in what I call a zero-sum game, uh, which means you're going to be taking money from something else, and therefore you're going to have to be uh, competing for what are finite resources in companies, dollars, time, people, and attention. And just as I said earlier, attention alone for a startup can be a big deal. So for all of those reasons, what you want to look for is an opportunity that is underserved, i.e., there aren't 10 other people trying to meet that need. If there are, you're going to compete for those same resources with those 10 other people. You want to try and find something that we'll talk about later as a white space. Now at this point, you'll probably notice that a lot of my talk here has been a very business-to-business -business sense, and that's because that's my experience. But what about consumers? Do you think this applies to consumers, or do you think everything I've said so far is, is uh, B2B? Anybody tell me why this might apply to consumers? Go ahead. Consumers make a lot more purchasing decisions than individual businesses, so and there's a lot more people competing for that target than average. That's absolutely true. But do, can anybody else tell me, do consumers have any of these traits too? Or do we all have infinite dollars? I mean, let's, let's face it. We, we have a paycheck and a net after-tax amount to spend on whatever it is we live on. You know, our utilities and everything else are going to be the first things we, we spend money on. That's the subsistence we have. Where are you competing for uh, dollars at consumer is important. Are you competing for nice-to-have things like their entertainment? Or are you competing for must-have things like their subsistence? Think about that for a second. It, it actually applies exactly to consumers. So I do think it's helpful to have a slightly different model, though, for consumers. And uh, for those of you who've done any of these studies, I mean, there's many different models. There's now um, completely different ones to the one I've put up here. But it, it's a good framework. This is the Myers-Briggs framework, social security, physical, economic recognition, responsibility, et cetera. These are all basic human needs. It turns out most of us have them in some form or another. They may be different at different times of our life. But if you tap into these needs, you will probably be addressing, again, uh, a more definable problem and therefore a more addressable problem. And just to pick one of them, like social, think about this for a second. Do people have the need to connect with others? Do you have a need to communicate? How many of you said you had cell phones? I guess we all need to communicate. That's a need we have. I mean, we don't like to exist in isolation. So if you think about the problem you're solving in these terms and you work through it, you'll find actually that even in the consumer sense, there are some very real needs. The, the one that always amuses me that actually has given rise to whole industries is dating. I mean, you shouldn't avoid it. We all have a need to connect and date and find our partner, and, you know, what, however that evolves. That's actually given rise to some pretty fundamentally huge industries. I would argue that um, the same thing that uh, caused Facebook to take off in college originally is what caused it to spread as a network for people to find and meet and connect and group and date and whatever else they wanted to do. So I think every consumer play also can be identified in the same way. Now, 
The tougher thing in the consumer world is to figure out whether that need is as burning and obvious as we've just been talking about. So can anybody think of a need that is not obvious, but when somebody actually uh, met it, you were thrilled? Anybody got an example of something that, hey, you bought a product you didn't know you needed, but wow, now you've got it, you love it? iPad. Did you define the need for an iPad before you had one? But would you take, if I took it away now, would you be happy or sad? And <laughs> why? What do you what do you like about it now? Uh, I organize everything. <coughs> I access the net on it. There you go. Now that is a fantastic example of what we're about to talk about. An unmet need that actually was probably not well. It wasn't obvious to you. You didn't go out looking for an iPad five years ago, right? You just. But now that you've got one, you're very happy with it. So I'm going to help you with that framework too. This is how to qualify. Uh, consumer needs. It's in what I call black and white. So the consumer need often is latent, meaning it's, it's sitting there, it's not on the surface, uh, but when you tap it and you finally give somebody an iPad and they can organize their life on it and, and do their email on it as well as access the net and shop on it and watch movies on it, they suddenly realize, wow, I love this, this is great. I really want to continue to use this device. That's a latent need that when you tap into it becomes very real. Other kinds of needs that, that come up are aspirational. So how, ma how many people here spend time online um, looking for uh, fashionable either clothes or things for their home? Be honest. One, two, three, well, OK, won't start counting. Lo lots of you. Is that a real need or is that an aspirational need? Aspirational. I want my home to look beautiful. I want you know, <coughs> yeah, I aspire to have these things that will in some way enhance my aesthetic experience. Great, great answer. Uh, and there's no right answer here. We all aspire to have something that either represents us or makes us feel appropriately uh, dressed or you know, furnished or whatever it might be. Those are aspirational needs. They're very real. I mean, last time I looked, the fashion business was not down as much as it should be if you looked at the relative e economic climate. And that's because people continue to spend money on their aspirational needs. These are very real needs. People aspire to, for example, fit within certain domains. And that causes them to say, OK, well, you know, if I want to work in this way or play in this way, I'm going to you know, uh, buy these things and, and uh, you know, enjoy my life by uh, you know, dressing this way. So these are real needs. They're just different. And this is how consumer needs come up. Now, the last two are the ones that I typically look for. Uh, because if you can find what I call blatant and critical needs, it's really not a question of whether you obviously will or won't buy something. And a blatant critical need is a lot different than a latent aspirational need. It's not to say that one won't get bounced completely out versus the other, but it just helps. So certainly in business, we look for blatant critical needs. Now the white piece is what I was talking about earlier. What we really want to do is find a white space whether those blatant critical needs are underserved. And what we're saying there is, can you find a white space where there's an open area of opportunity, where somebody has not identified a way to solve that blatant critical need? And if you can, you're really onto something. You're now in a place where I can tell you we're starting to pay tremendous attention as investors and where I guess that you're going to get serious attention from uh, potential customers too. The other two pieces here are, can you find it in a way that is uh, easy for you to capture and then defend 
uh, for the long term? And will you be able to define a way of doing it uniquely? So we'll move on to that. But because we've had uh, a discussion at this point around consumers, I wanted to bring up Rick uh, to talk a little bit about Discuss. And uh, this is an investment he made which is very much tapping a consumer need uh, for interacting. So Rick, come up and tell us a little bit, if you want to grab a microphone, about what does Discuss do and uh, why is it tapping a need? Discuss is the largest comment platform on the internet. How many people here read blog posts? And how many people here have used Discuss to comment on something? Great. So when you finish an article on any of these publications that you see here from Wired to CNN to Time Magazine, you know, almost 2 million sites uh, and, and about 75% of the, of the articles on the web, they'll have Discuss at the bottom. Uh, sometimes you don't even know you're using Discuss. But, but uh, if you've got the latest version embedded, you'll see a real-time commenting widget like the one that you've got here where you know, you've got a discussion and you can basically create a community around the site. So, so it's a pretty large, large community. It so what, just before yeah. you go on, so what need does that meet for us? I mean, why, why do people comment? What need are we meeting there? Letters to the editor? It's, it's letters to the editor, but communicate. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're trying to voice our opinion, share. Exactly. This is a funny thing. I mean, you know, if, if, if you look back at it, there's always been, thanks, Rick, for giving me the prompt, letters to the editor. Now we moved online. People still have that need. They just need it in a different form. Yeah, so now this, this gives you real-time commenting capability, and, and it allows you to build a community around a website so that you can have interaction not just with the folks that wrote about it, but also the, the folks that are reading about it, uh, which, is, which is unique. And, you know, community fosters engagement and it fosters uh, more time on the site, which means better advertising dollars and, and a number of other, other things like that. It turns out there was also a latent need in there as well, and that is that people want to discover new content. And so discuss, you might want to just share how that yes, it's so tapping into that. You know, they now have 900 million uniques a month, so almost 2 million sites, two million sites that use this. Uh, the discovery part, which is the way that this company monetizes their, their six billion pages of traffic, uh, is very interesting because it allows, once you read the comments section, it allows you to go to other articles that are similar, and they know if you're at the preview, reading a review of a digital camera, and then you went to uh, Engadget to see something else, and then you were at CNN. Once you're, you're at CNN, you know, they've cooked, they're cooking 900 million people over a very, very broad network, so they understand, you know, the, what, what people, are interested in, yep. and they can provide relevant content that's very unique. And so it allows you to discover new interesting stuff that, that other folks would, would find interesting. And so, thank you, Rick. So what's great about the Discuss ecosystem is that actually there are multiple people benefiting from it. So the users are benefiting because they're getting this, they're scratching the itch of, of being able to communicate and share. Uh, the publishers are benefiting from it because they're actually getting better engagement and they're able to therefore you know, uh, attract better advertisers and therefore grow their revenue. And the advertisers are getting uh, benefit from it because they're getting broader reach. Uh, so everybody's winning. It's a multifaceted value proposition, which they're hard to find, by the way, but if you can find them, are great. So Rick, uh, let's just put it in the template that we were putting up front. Sure. Uh, so who's this for? It's really for, for uh, uh, publishers and, and for the bloggers and, and the readers. And who's the primary audience? Like, if you had to sell to just one of those audiences, which, which would be the one you'd go after first? 
Well, the product, I know we have it on the slide as publishers, but I think the, pro the, the team would say that this cost is for the users, the guy. I mean, we could do a lot of things, or, or Daniel and, and Jason, the founders could do a lot of things that wouldn't be user-centric, but they are 100% user-centric, and that's how they've been able to grow to, to the large install base. And you bring up a great point here, by the way. I, I would say that almost any consumer product that first of all satisfies the user has a chance of succeeding. If by contrast they'd said, okay, we're just going to make this entirely publisher friendly, but the users didn't have a good experience, of course it's not going to take off. They wouldn't have built the network. So I think it's totally appropriate you said that. Now, what is it that the user cares about? What do they care about that's, that's driving this need? We, we've covered it, but. Well, they, they care about community. I mean, with Discuss, you can actually uh, understand who are the top commenters. You can get profiles on the commenters. It's real-time feedback. You could have a conversation and you know what the other person's thinking while while they're typing about, about something, and it's, it's basically better engagement on that site. And I would argue the key word in this value prop here is loyal. Uh, because the challenge on the internet is you're one click away from losing your customer, like that. And so how do you get them coming back? Well, obviously if they posted a comment, now they're engaged, and they're gonna wanna see what does, that, what does somebody else think about that? Or you, know, you very rarely find people just leave a comment and walk away and, and forget about it. So it's, it's a part of the engagement. It helps the publishers build their loyalty. And again, that's very important for what builds probably as a business model. So what do they define the product as? So they really are a network. Uh, there are many commenting systems on the, on the web. Uh, they have about 75% market share, but they really are a network. Uh, whereas other folks, uh, you know, if you've got guys that have a SaaS business and they'll sell to a publisher, uh, kind of a white label solution. You've got other folks that that uh, offer it for free, but it's, it's really uh, all the engagement goes back to another social network, for example, the case of Facebook, uh, which also has a commenting system. And Discuss is really a network, but it's a network built around the publisher sites. So you never have to leave the publisher site to engage and learn more about the users that are commenting and things like that. It's, so it's really publisher-centric network. And, and unlike other players, what's its particular distinction? I mean, wh how are they standing out? Because other people could have they, potentially done they, this. Yeah, they actually are more publisher-centric and more user-centric than the other networks that are uh, essentially uh, trying to build their own, their own uh, site architecture. I mean, one way of putting this would be, imagine if you're Condé Nast, you could have easily built this yourself, because it's not that technically difficult. I mean, I'm sure Dan would say it's extremely difficult at scale, but to build it for your sites. However, you'd be limited at that point to just people who commented on Condé Nast. That's not exactly interesting. The whole cross-pollination of these comments across the many different forms of media that people read is what really gets interesting. And of course, that's why I think they've ended up with a very the distinct advantage. The content discovery part, especially, yeah. yeah. Very good, great. Thank cool. you very much, Rick. Any questions for Rick on that before we, um, we lose him? So people starting to see how this framework now works? Yeah? Going back to the time when you were uh, you were in the design phase of your product, coming up with a value proposition. Um, this uh, conversation we have had about like social media, just for the sake of social media, because we want a community uh, experience online, but creating a, a sort of like another dimension in, uh, into that social existence is adding value. Like in this case, a conversation about the articles and, and things like that. So. My, my question is like, how did you foresee that at the time to take this social media online concept into this, uh, this side? So, yeah. 
So I'm not the founder of Discuss. I'm a board member in Discuss. So it's really Daniel that foresaw it and Jason that foresaw it. Uh, but um, you know, they they really believed that you know best in breed on the web would would not be done vertically integrated by by sites kind of on a cost structure basis. There's a lot of open source little commenting widget systems, but this is something that this is the largest uh, Python app on the entire web. 900 million people use it every month. So 300 million people comment actively every day. So there's a lot of people using this this app. It's socially distributed and it's it's a pretty large, complex. Um, it it looks simple, but it's so. If I think their bet is correct, if you look at companies like Bazaar Voice and all sorts of other folks, these embeds that are best in best in class with a lot more technology that go on larger. Uh, you know, companies like Outbrain. I mean, there's a lot of players that have that have uh, grown their their online businesses that way, and um, they they started in 07 when when the web was yo younger and. Uh, and uh, it, it allowed publishers, which are usually cash-strapped, a way to put much better technology on their sites. And they uh, didn't charge a better for it, experience. Right? Initially, it was free, so yeah. they got a large network. And, and today, they, they have uh, a discovery <laughs> option that actually makes money for publishers, so and whereas the SaaS vendors will go out and uh, you know, kind of charge to do something more premium, they actually have a revenue-generating element. They also have uh, a premium kind of super high-end system that's used by people like CNN, et cetera. So they have both options. But So I would, I would say a couple of things that you can generalize out of this. Thank you, Rick. Sure. Um, there are many cases where an entrepreneur has a vision for something like this, but they start with, for example, a simple product that's free, just like uh, Daniel and, and his team did. Um, but what they're, they're working towards is the vision that they clearly had, which is they're going to end up with the best of breed solution. And it's true on many occasions that if you can find a problem, as I was talking about earlier, that's generalizable. Like this is a generalizable problem. For any content publisher, there's probably an interest in commenting. Then you're probably going to be able to get it monetized at scale at some point. And so the real trick here was that they found a way to get it to market that was friction-free, you know, made it free, really easy. As opposed to you building itself, you just put a tag in your website and boom, you're done. So really easy, really you know, quick. Uh, free, so you know that simple. And then once it gets scale, you can do interesting things with it, like obviously use the community to get recommendations, find other ways to monetize it, etc. And it's fair to say that you know I, I, I don't have to go back to Rick for this. We're still early days in monetizing that property, but the fact that it's now one of the largest, if not the largest, app on the web, uh, is a great opportunity. So these things do evolve, and that's part of what I think we want to bring out in these case studies is. This stuff doesn't just happen overnight, which is why we're trying to get you to think about this. Okay, I want to just move on for time, but uh, every time I pause, I do want to make sure I haven't lost anybody. So are we okay? Anybody not following so far? Okay, good. So let me summarize on this section. The, the answer to um, every value prop is not that you're going to find four U's. Obviously, some value props will have you know, only one of these things. But the more that it's unworkable, unavoidable, urgent, and underserved, the more likely it is to rise to the top and get attention. And as I said, depending on whether it's consumer or it's uh, B2B, you might want to use the framework of whether it's blatant, latent, aspirational, or critical to figure out whether you're really attacking something that, again, is going to get people's attention and whether there's a white space associated with it. So hopefully that's a simple framework for you to use when you're defining a problem. So now, 
When you go back to all those ideas, instead of them just being free-floating, you can think about, okay, does this apply to the problem I found? And it starts to become a lot easier to filter your ideas, to start to focus in on them. And that's why we always say, when entrepreneurs come up with an idea, that sounds great, but what problem are you solving? And the more you can start with the problem and define the problem space, the more likely your ideas are to gel into something of a blatant critical for you need. So hopefully that helps you get to, to that stage. So at this point, what we've done is to at least define uh, the problem. And uh, we know, you know some ideas, hopefully, are, that you have to go address it. And it's, it's time to define the solution. And there are lots of questions that people always have around the solution. You know, who, what, where, when, why would all be the classic ones. Uh, the thing that I would always try to do is to get you focusing very quickly on the right way to think about your solution. So one way to do that is to tell you what's the wrong way. The wrong way is faster, better, cheaper. There's a good chance that if your idea is just faster, better, cheaper, it's incremental. And what's wrong with it being incremental? Will it be easy for people to catch? Yeah. Very good. Um, so since I know uh, some of the business you're in, tell me about the search world. Uh, what, what faster, better, cheaper would mean? Uh, you probably need my open source very quickly. Very good. So the problem with faster, better, cheaper is that it's a very definable way to beat somebody. So you're basically laying out the roadmap for somebody to say, look, here are the axes on which you can come and beat me. You could be faster than me, you could be better than me, you could be cheaper than me. What we're looking for is something that's a complete breakthrough, that changes the game, changes the rules, that you know, just literally moves the discussion from, say, 2D to 3D. You know, it's just a different perspective on the world. And so using that exact same mnemonic uh, technique, there are, in fact, three Ds I look for when you're trying to come up with a breakthrough opportunity. Number one, is it really a discontinuous innovation? In other words, is the way in which somebody's doing something completely different to the way it's been done before? It's not linear. It didn't happen you know, one step at a time. Somebody suddenly made a breakthrough and it changed the game. So you haven't heard yet uh, from our guests that you test, but in my opinion, they came up with a discontinuous innovation around how to do testing. As their name implies, they do testing. So Duran, could you just give us an example of what's discontinuous about the way you do testing? Sure. So uh, before we started, you know, the way you used to do testing is basically hire people in-house, build a huge lab, <coughs> or go and you know, use some kind of an outsourced <coughs> testing provider you know, in India, in China, somewhere offshore. And what we came with is really a model where uh, we built a global community of software testing professionals Today we have 70,000 professional testers from 190 countries across the globe. And they're the ones that are actually testing software for the actual customers. And that's really what is disruptive around you know, this specific model. One other thing that we also did, and that actually addresses in number three, is we actually also disrupted the business model. That basically means that we took it from a pay-per-hour business model, where we put people would pay per hour, to actually paying a fixed monthly fee. So we actually took it to a complete SaaS type of a business model. Thank you. So that's a great example. And you're going to hear more from Duron later on. His point was, look, the way people have done testing before is in a very fixed cost way, 
with fixed resources. But by crowdsourcing it, and also, as you'll hear later on, doing it in a way that meets customer needs better, it's a completely different way to approach the testing market. That's a discontinuous innovation. The last thing you already had a great example of, I find very few entrepreneurs focus on, and that is finding a disruptive business model. Well, 20 years ago, this wouldn't even been on this slide. People didn't think about business models as being disruptive. In fact, there really weren't very many business models. You know, you basically sold things and got paid for them. And we didn't have disruptive things like the internet to disintermediate people. But the world has moved on a lot. And almost everything can be disintermediated by the internet. And almost everything can be digitized. And because of that, you've got tremendously varied opportunities to come up with new business models that are highly disruptive. And in many instances, they're hugely defensible. So if you were Microsoft back 10 years ago, I just happened to be meeting with some of their executives about four hours ago, uh, you weren't worried at all about your business because you had a network of developers who were building apps for your platform that was absolutely ubiquitous. And everybody loved the fact that their PC booted up and they could run Office. And that was you know, all Microsoft from top to bottom other than Intel, I guess. So and that was known as the Wintel monopoly. It was a wonderful place to be. Unfortunately, when open source came along and people gave software along, away for free, you had a real challenge. Worse still, Google came out with a business model that said, actually, we don't value software. We're going to give it away for free. What we value is users and search. And when we get those users, we're actually going to be able to sell advertising to them. Completely disrupted Microsoft's model. And if there's a reason why Microsoft stock has been a dial tone for the last few years, it's nothing to do with that technology. It was to do with that business model disruption. So those are very, very powerful things for you to think about how you might make a breakthrough. And I'm not saying it should be only that. In fact, the ideal is when you do all three of these things. That's why I say, remember three Ds. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, geez, this high demand on me to come up with, you know, all these unworkable, unavoidable, underserved, urgent needs and come up with disruptive business models. That's true. The, the more there is, then the more this startup secret is true. If you're going to pick a fight, pick a big fight. Why? Because guess what? In many instances, it's just as much work to go after a small opportunity as it is a big one. So if you've done something really disruptive, go after a big market with it. And I would almost invariably encourage you to find a problem that's big, because big problems generally offer big opportunities. In fact, our firm focuses on what we call game changers, where we look for particularly hard problems to solve, because that generally means defensible IP and obviously great value to customers when you do solve it, and therefore potentials for really interesting business models and growth in, in a, a significant business. So pick a big fight would be my one takeaway from this. Because of all the work that you've just done to get your problem really well defined and build a great solution is true, then you might as well uh, capitalize on it in a really large marketplace. OK, well, we've got through the piece that I think is actually the hardest, which is you know, how do you go about taking an initial thought or an idea and defining a value prop? The, the next thing that I'm going to encourage you to do is evaluate it. So oftentimes, people will say to me, well, you know, I've got this great idea. I've defined my value prop, et cetera. Am I ready for funding? No is the answer. Uh, you're ready for funding when you've actually gone and evaluated it, and you've assessed whether when somebody actually uh, takes note of your value proposition, they're going to pay for it. So how do you evaluate that? There are two fundamental ways. The first is a qualitative evaluation. And this is an easy one to put on paper and a harder one to prove out. But I'd simplify, I'd simplify it and say, you should be able to describe the before 
and the after state of your value proposition. So before U-Test's way of doing uh, business, there were a, a finite number of testers who could do what uh, Duran's company does. And people would hire them directly. And he's going to talk about this a little bit later on. After, he could crowdsource from anywhere in the world, and he could get a variety of skills engaged. That's an example of what I'm looking for here. David, can you give me an example of the before and after with a Kiban? Can you give me an example of a customer who was struggling using a database before you and after you, what their benefit was? Um, so um, uh, one example, actually, is a, uh, there's a local uh, dating company called uh, uh, Online Buddies. Um, and uh, like most dating companies, that the, 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 well, I suppose you get the idea of what a, dating, <laughs> what a dating application does. But fundamentally, you are searching through lots and lots of data trying to find people on real, in real time who fit a certain profile. And that actually can take a very, very long time in a database. In fact, the more kind of criteria you want to search on, the longer it would take. Um, and time is a killer in the world of database. So um, they were trying to uh, re-architect the whole uh, application. To do that, they literally had to rewrite everything. It costs about $250,000 every time they would make one of these changes every year to re-architect it. What Akeban does is provide a solution, as Michael described, that basically uh, runs those kinds of queries incredibly fast, hundreds of times faster. Uh, but we do it in a way that's not disruptive. So we just plug into an existing architecture, and you redirect the query to Akeban, and we'll run those 100 times faster. So you're literally bringing this huge amount of relief to the customer without them having to re-architect or redesign or go through any of the pain that they went through traditionally. Thank you, David. So I'm going to now describe it in the two words that I, I want to contrast on this. If you've got your before and after statement really clean, the before will be acute pain, and the after will be absolute joy. So I asked David to give me this dating example because I think it's at least a little fun. You know, the acute pain of being online trying to search for somebody who's close to you in geographic terms, and he also has the same interests as you, and that you also think might be a fit in terms of some of the other activities that you want to partake in, is very real. And if you're sitting there for hours, and you're sitting there thinking, wow, this thing is coming back with nobody, how good does that feel? <laughs> Not great, right? If it comes back in nanoseconds with 10 people, how joyful is that going to feel? You get my point. There are lots of examples like this which you can bring to life by just putting the before and after statement in this way. And honestly, that picture that you're painting there is what you're going to want your customer to experience from your solution. So this is what I would describe as the qualitative evaluation. And the real test for you is have you got something that's nice to have, i.e. it's like a vitamin. You'd love to take vitamins that it's useful, but if you skip one for a day, it's not a problem. Or have you got something that's penicillin, which if you don't take it, you're going to end up you know, in a deadly ill situation. And I mean, there's lots of ways people talk about this. But I'm trying to make the point here that your solution is much better uh, uh, or much more likely to succeed if it's penicillin than if it's a vitamin. In other words, if it's meeting a real painful need rather than just a nice to have. So this is a great point to um, give UTEST the chance to talk a little bit about their value proposition. So using the same framework, I'm going to ask uh, Duran and Matt and Fumi here to, uh, to take the mic for a second and, and talk a little bit about for what, what is it that, that UTEST does. So first of all, just at a, at a high level, sure. who are you serving as, as your customers? So we're serving companies that have public-facing web and mobile apps. Uh, by the way, I would not treat this as a good example. I think that typically startups uh, would do well to focus a lot more than that on startups or on SMBs or on a specific industry. 
it so happens that our solution solves a problem uh, that isn't governed by a certain segment of the market, a certain vertical within the market. Uh, over the course of a, a lot of tiers and a lot of sweat equity, we've learned that it's, it's really about if they have public-facing web and mobile properties. So you, you make a great point there, by the way. So one of the workshops in Go to Market will talk about exactly what Matt just uh, encapsulated, which is you want as narrow a, f a first segment to, to pick off. And it turns out that you've been through a few iterations before you landed at this one. We have indeed. Okay. We'll leave the blood and sweat at tears. By the way, I would say that when we did start, focus of, was on startup. So we basically said, you know, we know it's a broad solution that fits everybody, but we actually do want to start by focusing on startup and use that as a way to kind of learn and see where the fit is and kind of uh, evolve over time. So how long did it take you, just as a matter of interest, to figure out who to focus on? Uh, Duran mentioned we were really focused on startups in the software vertical. We weren't talking to retail or media or gaming companies. It was, you know, it was A round, B round type companies uh, who were willing to put up with, with the, the shit of dealing with another startup. Um, and, and I would say we were really, really tightly focused on that, uh, partially out of discipline and partially out of necessity. That's who had the screaming pain point back in 2008. So what was that cre screaming pain point? What were they unhappy with? Uh, it's an interesting evolution because uh, I would echo um, what Aperion experienced. This was not our value proposition in 2008 or 9. It's not what the market knew it needed, and it's not anything we had identified. Uh, Duran mentioned it earlier. It was, it was flexible testing so that you could go from three testers to 30 to 300 and back down to three in the matter of a week. Um, and so it really was around uh, the efficiency and the fluidity of testing. Okay. And then what was it that was our innovation? Um, well, what we discovered actually over time, and this was only by peeling the onion with customers and, and asking them continually, why do you keep giving us money? Why do you keep giving us money? Why do you keep giving us money? And not accepting any of their trite answers uh, like, oh, well, you know, Fumi's great. And we'd say, yeah, Fumi's not that great. <laughs> um, and, and not accepting that, that we discovered that the real value proposition, the real value that they saw in us that they couldn't see in any of the other 5,000 testing companies on the planet was that the testing that we do is in the wild. It's outside the lab. It's closer to where their users work and live and play. That was a breakthrough for us. And I would love to say that that was in the business plan or I walked in the first day and said, oh, you've got it all wrong and I know what you should be doing. It was from talking to users and not accepting their first three answers uh, because they'll just be polite to you. So that was the, the breakthrough that led us to in the wild testing. Great. And since I think Fumi is great, okay. maybe Fumi, you could answer. So why is this different to outsourced testing? W what is it that we have that's unique? Yeah, so, so part of it is the elasticity. Uh, part of it is that um, with outsourced testing, you, do, you, you can't um, uh, change the size. You can't get a team um, working very quickly and then um, be able to move on to some other projects. Mm -hmm. um, also, the other is that um, in, uh, in the wild testing is just not possible with um, outsourced. Uh, many of them say it's um, it, it's crowdsourced or it's um, on demand, but the the reality is that they're not real users. They're um, they're they're usually in a in a in an isolated location, and um, it's not it doesn't get the benefit of real users uh, uh, being geographically uh, uh, distributed, for example, which our customers want when they're testing their their mobile apps that that work in in real life. That's great. So I mean, you will know this. I mean, you you get an app from the app store. Uh, you download it, and if you have a bad experience with it, you probably just chuck it. Uh, so this is pretty fundamental. This testing actually makes a difference between you using something and becoming, obviously, a paying customer. 
and you're just switching it right off. So they're solving a real problem, and what's interesting about it is they've done it in a way that was never thought of before, which is, you know, why not get the users, the actual potential customers, to be part of the solution, and therefore get them doing it in the world. It's very innovative. So the before and after on this is quite fun. So Daron, do you want to just take us through that? Yeah, so, so basically, you know, before, the idea was, uh, you know, in order to really test across different devices and configurations and environments, you really had to build a big lab. Uh, and in order to do that, you know, obviously startups couldn't do that, and that's why we focused on them initially. But in addition to that, you know, because of social, because of local aware application, because of the fact that, you know, every time the iPhone 5 gets released, a market just grew bigger, you couldn't really keep up with the pace of innovation of different devices and different configurations. And this is where, you know, uh, when we look at it today, the fact that we have distributed testers which are profiled and rated and actually test, the testing team actually fits the type of application that they're actually testing. So let's take a very simple example. I'm HBO and you know, I'm using the HBO Go application in order to watch HBO online. And I use it on my Android, I use it on my iPhone, I use it on, on my iPad, I use it on my gaming device at home. This specific application, which works only in the US and needs to be tested in the US, needs to be tested across different carriers, needs to be tested on Wi-Fi and non-Wi-Fi, it needs to be tested on 200, 300 different combinations of Android devices. This cannot be done in the lab. This cannot be done by an internal testing team. This cannot be done in China. This cannot be done in India. And that's, that's really the only way for them to test there's no other way is by using a model like you test. So f fabulous example. And, and after, you know, what's the experience? Yeah, so the, you know, the, the revelation for us was that uh, as the device and, and OS and carrier and location landscape got more and more diverse, um, that you should make your testing mimic or mirror your user base. So if you have uh, users that are predominantly females between the ages of 25 and 39, and they're college educated and they live in the US, uh, and these are the devices and OSs you care about, your testing team should look like that as well. Uh, you can ask either of these guys because they grew up in a world of software. The, the, the most common response from a QA manager uh, when a bug gets reported from an end user that snuck through into production is, well, it worked for us. Um, and Forever, QA managers have been getting beat up by CTOs and CEOs and CFOs and saying, why do we invest in all you people? You know, there's still stuff that's leaking through. And we're getting blown up on Twitter and blown up on Facebook, and our customer service line is, is you know, red, ringing off the hook. Why do we invest so much in you? Um, and fundamentally, what, we just, what we've revealed is they weren't doing something wrong in the lab. It's not that they have bad people or bad processes or bad tools. It's that they were missing a step in the process. And that is the notion of testing outside the QA lab. Great. So this whole after effect was very real. Testing in the wild meant you were representing your users for real. You got real results, real data, and therefore really happy customers. So thank you, guys. That's a Absolute great joy, right? Yeah, absolute, absolute joy. Absolute. That's what I was looking for. And so, willingness to pay for it. Yeah. So, on that subject, the willingness to pay for it is what we wanted to get onto. So we've covered the qualitative evaluation, and now let's talk about how do you ev evaluate whether somebody's going to pay for it. The simple thing I'm going to introduce you is something called the gain-pain ratio. And uh, I came up with this simply because everybody has 
a uh, gain that they get uh, from a good product. But what most people forget is what is the pain that the customer goes through to adopt your product? And it's very real. There, is, there are very few products that don't have some pain associated with being adopted. So let's talk about each of these. First of all, the gain is usually measured very simply in terms of things like revenue or cost savings or time. Uh, it may be, for example, people savings, as in the case of, of U-Test, um, or competitive advantage, which is something that comes up in early markets. So not to be ignored here is some customers will buy your product simply because they think it's enough of a breakthrough. It will make them leapfrog their competition. So there are good examples of this in our, our industry all the time. Obviously, when you can supply, for example, a carrier, a piece of equipment that makes their network 10 times faster, and therefore their customers experience their service 10 times better, and you do it at the same price, they're going to acquire more customers, and that's going to give them competitive advantage versus everybody else. They will pay for that. That's something that even if it didn't save time or money for them, it may have cost them time or money, they will pay for. So competitive advantage can be very key. And then reputation, for example, could be another example. Um, if you're going to enhance their reputation by helping them as, for example, you know, Discuss does, build a community where their competitor doesn't have that, you know, that might be something that they aspire to do. So that's the gain side. That's probably the most obvious side. The, least, the less obvious side is, is pain. What does it cost for your customer to implement this? In the business world, there are real costs associated with any of these kinds of, of products and solutions. So uh, in Aperion's case, um, if Brian as the CFO could give us a, an example of it, what did it initially cost for a customer before we had our um, epiphany about going live in five? What did it initially cost for a customer to go through implementation of Aperion? How long did it take? How many people were involved? What was the typical cost? The rollout process was probably at a minimum two to three weeks um, because the, you know, the, as most companies like, uh, like ours, we went to market probably a little before the product was really done. Um, so the, the one part we hadn't really finished was how we're going to roll this thing out to customers. So it worked when it was, when it was installed, but the installation was a little messy. Um, so as Michael said, we, we came up with a Live in 5 program and, and have since spent a lot of time fixing that. But it was, it was a very painful implementation. And for the first six months of the subscription part of the business, it was difficult. You know, customers loved the, loved the concept, but they said, it's just it's really hard for us to get this thing implemented. Call us back in six months when you're really ready to do it. Thank you very much. So what happened there was very interesting. The team was very responsive and they get, you know, 11 out of 10 in my book for what they did, which is they took what used to take two or three weeks and they figured out how to engineer a product that actually could get a customer up and running in five minutes. That was the Live in Five program. And the net result of that was that customer conversion rates doubled. So the number of customers that started to move through the funnel from evaluation, trying the product to buying it, doubled. And that's what you've really got to think about. How easy is it for somebody to find you? That's a real issue for startups, even just being identified correctly. That's a marketing issue. How easy is it for them to try you, to buy you, to implement, to deploy you, to roll out? and even own you. So the last one people often forget, I'll just exemplify uh, with the laser printer business. So how many people use a laser printer here? I would imagine everybody, but does anybody um, have one at home? A Couple of people. Do you care about the cost of the laser printer now or do you care cost about the cost of the toner? The toner, right? That's the cost of ownership of a laser printer. It's not the printer. You've probably spent more by a factor of some multiple, I don't know whether it's five or 10, depending on how long you've had your printer on your toner. And that's the total cost of ownership that when you think about 
your product or service, your customer is going to evaluate. So don't think about just what you charge them up front. Think about the experience of what it's going to cost them to run it. It turns out that could be an opportunity, by the way, for you to change your business model too. If you're really making money on the toner, which is, by the way, exactly what HP and many others do, they price those printers way below cost in some instances to get you hooked on their product. And that's why they make money is, is the cost of the toner. So I'm going to ask the U-Test guys to, again, just give us a sense of this. You guys obviously have a clear gain. In fact, we probably don't need to go through that in too much detail. But can you highlight what the pain was for your customers to adopt this? Because you were very honest about this. Uh, yeah, it, there is pain involved in, in the world of software testing. When we're doing our job well, it's a bad news business. Uh, and that means we are reporting 40, 50, 60 bugs on the latest version of your iPhone app or the latest version of your Kindle Fire app or your website. Um, and it's not just a clean matter where, you know, we report the bugs and you say, okay, you know, poof, they're fixed. Uh, we're actually creating work for the CTO's organization. There has to be somebody who has to actually go and review these and reproduce these bugs. So there's increased overhead, not just for the QA department, but we're actually creating work for the engineering department. Now they realize how many things are actually broken in the wild, and that's great for users. That's lousy for, uh, for the Fumis of the world. Um, the second thing that happens is they might be good at managing uh, their five-person QA team. They might be good at managing one outsourced vendor in Bangalore. Um, but in the original iteration of U-Test, you had just inherited 35 testers from 14 different time zones. And there was a lot of collaboration that was required between the in-house team uh, and the, the crowd-based team. And so I think we've, we've realized that early on, and we've, uh, we've taken a lot of steps to decrease that pain. Um, the original business plan, correct me if I'm wrong, Duran, didn't include a, a professional services layer. Uh, now we actually have a 20-person team uh, that can do work remotely for clients, that can actually go on site, um, and is actually a revenue center for us. Uh, but their job is to make sure that the overhead is what you want it to be. Some clients actually want to be very involved with the testers. testers. Other clients don't want anything to do with it. Uh, they want us to actually gift wrap it and say, these are the 12 things that you should fix tomorrow. Uh, and ultimately, our goal uh, that we've come to in the last 12 to 18 months is we need to maximize the in-the-wild testing that we can do and minimize the incremental overhead. Uh, and it was only when we realized that it wasn't just about maximizing gain, it was about minimizing pain, uh, that things really started to fall into place for us. Great. Perfect example. And, and thank you very much, Matt, for being so honest about it. Most companies won't fess up to the reality of how painful their product is. I would encourage you as a startup to spend all your time when you're first getting a product to market, asking your customers about why they don't like it. Not why they do like it, why they don't like it. What are all the experiences that are a struggle for them? If you really get focused on that, then you'll be able to figure out how to take that pain down the way Matt's been talking about and reduce the friction. And if you come to a, a, one of the latest sessions, I talk about actually the idea of creating what I call slippery products, which really are friction-free ways for customers to adopt your product. So, with that said, the last piece that people very rarely even think of is the piece I call inertia. So it turns out as a startup, the biggest challenge you have is that you are a risk. You're just a risk from the get-go because it's not even sure, nobody's ever sure that you're even going to be around. So you have inertia to even get into a customer discussion. And their default will be to do nothing. Do nothing might mean do nothing, or it might mean as Rick was talking about, they'll build their commenting system themselves because they'll consider that less of a risk than buying it from a startup, even if you've got a great vision. So you've got to factor this in. And what you've got to figure out is what are those alternatives? And in particular, 
is there something that's good enough? Because if a, there's a good enough solution out there, that will be the default that the customer will take rather than bet on a startup because you're a risk. So with that in mind, what we want to do is obviously you know, ask this question. What's the right ratio here? Anybody got a sense? What should be your gain-pain ratio for a customer to say, I'm going to write a check for you? Should it be one? Go ahead. 10 to 1? Why 10 to 1? Um, it seems like the gain should be significant. I mean, Absolutely. you're a new company, you're trying to get customers and, and gain that momentum. It's got to be significant over the pain and the risk that they, they're going to have to go through to implement your product. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's got to be significantly better than the pain uh, and the risk associated with investing in you, which is basically what they're doing. And so 10 to 1 is exactly the number we always say. It's got to be at least an order of magnitude better in your gain pain for a customer to consider your value proposition really worth it. So when you get to quantifying this, it isn't easy to put it in numbers. Uh, but again, we're lucky enough to have you test here. And so I'm going to call on Duron to, to actually share how did they quantify their gain pain ratio. So you know, basically what we did is we looked at, you know, what's the type of gain that we're providing to the customer. So, you know, from what the customer really care about is basically, you know, time to market. It's the cost that they're paying. It's the fact that the users are significantly more happy with the application. So basically when they download it, install it, run it, they don't delete it immediately because it does something. Um, and basically, by doing that, we ensured that, and by reducing the overhead of using our system, we made sure that the value proposition of gain to pain is really significant. Very good. And you actually were challenged, I think, to quantify it in the early days. What, what, what were you first seeing? So, you know, in the, f the first at the beginning, I think it was a kind of a one-to-one -one type of a ratio. So, you know, we were kind of getting the gain of, you know, it's nice to have, we're getting good feedback, but you know what, you know, we need to kind of communicate with those testers, and we need to make sure that they, you know, uh, we keep on tab because they keep nagging us if they reported something and we didn't give them feedback. So I think it took us, uh, it's, it's really a cycle of, you know, iteration of improvement over time in order to make it significantly better. So you really need to listen to your customer base. You really need to understand the pain that they're feeling in implementing it. Now, one of the things that you know, we did as of day one is we actually used our system ourselves. So as of day one, from the first release of the product, so once we started doing the first cycles of actually developing, we've used our testers in order to test our application. So we're actually consumer of our users, and we actually uh, used it actually up until today. So we're continuously using our product in order to test our product. So our testers are testing from the tester perspective and from the customer perspective. That gives our engineering team, our product team, our community team a real gauge of what's the experience for the customer. So I, I think that's a very important point. It's actually a great point. I'm a huge believer in this. It's you know, eating your own cooking. And uh, in my case, by the way, that would be a horrible experience. Yeah. But um, 
it's really important to do that because your own internal team will have a whole different appreciation and awareness of what the customer experience is before you expose the customer to it. So there are lots of ways people do that. Um, you know, in the software world, it's things like building on your own APIs or it's using your own product or service. So I really encourage that. Any other insights you'd want to share before we uh, move on from this one? Yeah, I will mention one thing. Uh, the early days of U-Test, we were focused mostly on how much money are we saving you. Um, and what we saw were, I think the next slide will actually get into a, an ROI sample. It was, uh, we were, you know, we were 10x uh, more efficient. Uh, and one of the things I, I give um, Duran and company a lot of credit for is they weren't satisfied with that. They didn't want to actually be the cheap solution. They wanted to build more of the value proposition on value. And so if you go forward one more, that entire green section is about incremental value. And so we actually look at the, the gain as a, a composite uh, based on cost savings plus uh, the incremental value you're actually adding to their lives. And the bottom line on this was that the team actually did go the full distance and prove to the customer that there's an ROI of 10 to 1 here. Right, so, so, so I'll take this and give you an example. So this is actually an ROI that we did not do. I mean, usually we don't get this level of accessibility to data. This was actually done by the Google Chrome team out of Seattle. And basically what they did is they uh, compared us over a period of time against uh, traditional on-site outsourcing. So this is vendors that actually come on-site and are part of the team. And basically what they did is, if you look on the left-hand side, they had eight testers um, basically working for 40 hours a week over a total uh, full week of five days. They tested 300 URLs that are being used by Google Chrome, the most popular URLs around the world, and they discovered 19 issues that are fix-worthy. So 19 issues that the dev team said, you know what, we're going to fix that, and we're going to fix it now for the next, next release of Google Chrome. And basically, the price that they paid is $15,000, but if you look at the price per issue, meaning price per issue fixed is $789. They ran the same test with us at exactly the same week. And we basically used 30 testers. Uh, each tester spent 10 hours, and we finished everything in two days. So that's value number one, is time to market. We were able to cover more ground and cover it more quickly. Uh, we tested the 300 URL, and we discovered 129 issues that were fix-worthy. So not only we did it faster, and we discovered by a 10x amount of time the number of issues that they actually deemed to be fixed. And if you look at the price comparison, it costs them $10,000. But if you look at the value per item fixed, it actually was $78. So the real ratio of cost is 10 to 1. So it's time to market, it's quality, and it's cost. So three things that we were significantly better over the old way of doing it. That's excellent. What I love about this example um, is that if you think about all the things that Duran and his team worked through there, they weren't all just you know, things that you would say were pure benefits at, in a dollar sense. Like time to market is a really big advantage to people, but may not be measurable in dollar terms. But it's meaningful to a company like Google who's trying to compete in a very hot space. So do think about ways that you can bring your gain-pain ratio into focus. And uh, I would summarize by simply saying you need to have at least an order of magnitude improvement in this. And the best thing you can do when you're evaluating your value prop is to ask all these questions up front long before you ask for the check. Uh, and if you're getting the right answers and you're getting that sense that you have an order of magnitude improvement, you probably will get the check. 
And that's the reason why I would put this you know, long before the uh, initial go-to-market exercise becomes a reality of you trying to hire salespeople and pay bills. So uh, one more example just to sort of keep us you know, moving from uh, case study to case study. Uh, Aperion actually solved a problem for Estee Lauder. And I know, Brian, you weren't the person who actually sold them uh, this particular deal. But would you like to just briefly talk through uh, here what the benefits were to Estee Lauder and what their, sure, their gain was? I was about to take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so actually, Estee Lauder was one of the fr uh, company's first customers, and this goes back to the days when the company was actually doing app development work. And, and Estee Lauder approached Aperion because what they what they wanted to do was not, I don't know if any of you have been to any Clinique counters or any other uh, cosmetic counters that are owned by one of the Estee Lauder companies, um, but they now have iPads there, and, and, and they they have questionnaires on that iPad that are constantly being updated. Uh, Aperion developed that that app for them. And the, what happened with Estee Lauder was they said, okay, that's great, but now we need to roll it out to, to 40,000 kiosks around the world. And right now it's about, it's, it's seven, there's 17,000, but ultimately they want to have 40,000 of these kiosk iPads worldwide. How are we going to do that? We can't possibly have an IT person go to each one of these and upload a new app every week or every season or whenever a new a product line or a new SKU comes out. So we developed a system that enabled, enabled us to push these uh, app updates out to uh, these, these kiosk iPad, iPad, iPads that uh, Estee Lauder has at their, at their various uh, facilities. Um, the alternative, obviously, was to do it themselves, which would have been a huge effort. They estimated about $2.5 million is what it would have cost them to do that. And I, I kept the punchline to last, uh, which is unfair because you should get the benefit of it, which is that the sales went up by how much? Sales of the, of the product. Yeah. Uh, the 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 initial test from the, at the some of the stores in New York. This, I mean, the sales went up like 400 uh, percent right off the bat. And the reason, if you think about it, was is people walk into stores and they have you know the, do you do you want somebody walking up to you saying you need this product or this product? You don't really want that. But people tended to trust the information coming out of the of the iPad, so they would enter their skin type. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's programmed by by probably the same person that's spraying perfume in your face. But uh, what, what would happen is people would enter in their skin type and what they plan on doing, and, and the, the iPad would spit out, here's what you need, and by the way, here are the product numbers, and you could just go grab them and buy them. So, that, I mean, the, the take-up was unbelievable, and it has been to this day. So, thank you. I mean, it's a great example, again, of the gain pain, obviously in order of magnitude. But then the fact that the sales went up 4x, no-brainer. So this is the reason why this stuff becomes so important for you to evaluate. Now, my next startup secret is a little hard to get your arms around, so I'm going to use David to bring it up. But I will, uh, first of all, give you a sense of what I'm getting at here. Almost everything I've told you um, is going to, in some way, be a breakthrough if you do a great job of it. Breakthroughs, by definition, have the word break in them. So they break stuff. That is a challenge. If you're breaking stuff, it usually costs people to go break it and fix it and put it back together again, even if what you come up with is a much better solution. So the really great innovations or great value props are actually great breakthroughs in terms of their output, but they are non-disruptive to actually adopt. And so what we loved about Akiban was that we looked at many, many different database companies, uh, you know, literally in the sort of 40 or 50 companies. But almost all of them had a simple basic premise, which is you've got to rewrite your application to take advantage of it. It's just not going to happen. I mean, people have invested billions, not an exaggeration, 
in IT systems written around a standard called SQL. And so they're just not going to rip that out, even if you can come in with an order of magnitude improvement, as we were suggesting earlier. So David, what was your way of solving this problem? Um, so um, <clears throat> what we did at Akeven, um, again, we had this incredibly disruptive innovation in that you could basically solve the performance issues for most databases running those queries hundreds of times faster and actually do things that you couldn't do before, and that was great. But the issue was is how do you adopt it? And so what we came up with is a concept of uh, what's called replication. Uh, instead of you having to rewrite your application, we just plug in alongside your existing database, and then you redirect the problem queries over to Akeven. In doing that, you don't have to re-architect, you don't have to rewrite any part of your application to do that. It's literally a seamless process. There's another key element to it, which is actually fitting into the operational environment. These are 24-7 operations. They can't go down. Uh, they have very, very rigorous rules. Uh, and, and, and the guys who run those, the system admins and the DBAs, follow very, very precise procedures. So it was very important that we could just slot in alongside the existing operating environment to allow you to not just achieve this in the first place, but then to run it seamlessly. So there's a, a beauty of this that falls out in David's value proposition, which is, you know, as you can tell, he has a way of talking about this that is you know, a much improved 10 to 100x performance. But the unlike statement at the bottom is, unlike some uh, alternatives that are now called NoSQL, which literally don't use SQL, would require a rewrite, he can do all of this without you doing that rewrite. So in his value prop statement, that unlike was really the key. It was the thing that enabled him to have a very disruptive innovation, yet a non-disruptive ado adoption. It took all the pain of adoption out and took all the risk out in that case too because actually you could just evaluate it on the fly alongside what you're doing today and see, hey, is this making an impact or not? And if it didn't, guess what? You wouldn't invest. But the good news is we're seeing not just 10 but 100x performance increases in some customers. And so David, I'd, I'd love you to just give the name media example of, of what's the impact been for them. Uh, in, in business terms? Um, actually, I'll give two real quick examples. So one is Name Media. So Name Media is uh, another uh, relatively local company. They handle all of the domain name sales. So when you go to one-on-one to, to -on -one or GoDaddy to buy a domain name, they're actually buying that through this wholesale service uh, in Name Media. Uh, and they had big problems in terms of the performance of their website. Performance really means money. What they've been able to show is that by eliminating that performance, they've been able to drive up revenue 200%. Uh, on those applications. So it's a big, big revenue impact. Another very quick example is uh, Citrix. Uh, Citrix has a collaboration platform that they're just bringing to market. Um, uh, their problem was is that they, they needed to be able to provide greater security for that to allow it to go viral, and they just simply couldn't get the performance. So with Akeeban, again, we've been running 42% of all of these queries now with these security uh, uh, queries uh, 40, uh, 100 times faster. And so we just eliminate the problem. And so it means that you can take that entire platform out to market as a viral product. So it's a big go-to-market boom. What's beautiful about the examples in, in Akeban's, uh, you know customer base is there's no change to applications, there's no risk in deployment, and yet you're getting this you know, gain pain ratio of 10 to 100. So we've really uh, got through the two tough parts. And at this point, I'm going to finish by just describing to you a couple of uh, examples of how you might go about building your value prop as you sit down now to do it. So again, um, I think you've now seen this template enough to realize it's pretty straightforward. It's about who you target, what you're currently uh, competing with, and what you do differently, and how it is that you do that in a way that ultimately makes it unique and valuable. So uh, when I was 
just putting this um, together last time that I was here, I had somebody come up and challenge me and say, okay, that all sounds great, but what if I'm a not-for-profit? Um, and so I promised to give an answer to that. So this is an extension to uh, the, uh, the case studies. And I'd like Alok to come up. He's going to talk to us about Diagnostics for All. So Alok, can you tell us a little bit about what Diagnostics for All is all about using the value prop statement here? Yeah, sure. So uh, just to give you a quick background, I'm a scientist over across the river in the chemistry department in George Whiteside's lab. And so about, I think about three years ago, George uh, and some scientists there developed the technology that enables you in a very low cost and simple and elegant manner to diagnose a variety of diseases for anyone from people to animals to testing the quality of milk using paper. And so basically this uh, approach was sort of uh, being brought to market, if you will, through a nonprofit called Diagnostics for All. And it's essentially designed for people in the, in the third world, in the developing world. Essentially people who live in rural environments who don't have access to a conventional medical infrastructure. And so generally, you know, I think this sort of juxtaposes with perhaps some of the other examples where there may be some solutions that are already out there that they might be ex expensive. In this case, there really are no opportunities for someone in the third world in, in a farm, you know, in, in Ghana or Gambia, for example, to get access to a diagnosis, to understand, you know, what's wrong with them, uh, why they're ill. And so basically, I guess, it's for people in those sorts of environments who are dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the fact that they don't have access to uh, diagnos diagnostics or diagnoses. Um, and the technology that they're using is essentially patterned paper that enables them to test a myriad of diseases all in within a few minutes. And so this, again, is a low cost. It's about, costs about a penny in, in, at scale. Um, easy to use. Uh, that's also another important point. You know, unlike the U.S., where we have a lot of... Uh, training and physicians and nurses and staff behind testing diseases, the they don't have that. And the alternative would have been, what, no diagnosis, basically. No, exactly. No yeah. diagnosis. And so I think one of the real comparisons in the gain-pain ratio, for example, is the fact that uh, in this case, unlike uh, a big company that might have to pay more, in this case, pain is actually real pain, where they're not able to get treatment or an understanding of their illness. So just to give you one example, um, DFA did a quick study, or uh, I guess the NIH in Rwanda did a study where about 53% of women in Rwanda could not afford health care. And about 26% of them lived too far away from a hospital in order to get access to diagnostics and treatments. And so what DFA has been doing is on the right-hand side, you can see this really small piece of paper. It costs about a penny, two pennies now if you include the reagents. Uh, that's a point-of-care device that enables them to test for a whole bunch of enzymes and diseases uh, right on that piece of paper. So I think that one example is for uh, liver failure. So how many people here have ever gone out drinking really hard one night? <laughs> Nobody's going to admit yeah. that. No one's going to admit it? <laughs> yeah. Sid admits it. Yeah. Thank you, Sid. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the reason you're still alive after doing that is because your liver removes all the impurities and all the uh, tox toxic agents out of your blood. Now, it turns out that for a lot of folks uh, in the third world who are taking medicines, a lot of the medicines uh, also can destroy the liver. So we need to be able to constantly monitor and assess the, the health and the state of their liver. And so this test looks for two uh, enzymes, ALT and AST, to assess the quality and the health of their liver. Great. It's a great story, Alok. And, and I, I hope you can all appreciate this is one where there's real pain, you know, medical pain, and, and also you know, third world pain. And it feels, frankly, like a cause that any of us could get behind, where there's really no current solution and such a large problem, uh, and at a scale where you know existing infrastructure just wouldn't support it. So the beauty of this is no infrastructure, no training, and really no time requirement to bring it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah.
Can I ask a question on that? I'm just curious. Uh, what, what I think is different is who the painting Hello? is experienced by versus who ends up paying for that innovation or that product. So part of the challenge, I think, is convincing someone who's not experiencing that difficulty of implementing it, uh, that it's a worthwhile solution to the people who are doing that thing. So how do you address that disconnect between who pays for the service and who benefits from it? Yeah, that's a really great point, and I think one of the reasons this is sort of a white space area is because you're right, you know, the people who experience the pain don't have the money to physically afford a lot of those solutions. So to address your point, I'd say there's, there's two elements to it. One is that a lot of governments are getting very heavily involved. The Rwandan government, uh, the Indian government, Chinese government are all trying to develop these low-cost technologies because they can't afford, you know, a million-dollar MRI. So that's one reason I think there's a lot of uh, incentive for them because um, they want their people to be healthy and they want productivity and... Uh, is also dependent on the health of their, their citizens. That's one thing. Uh, DFA, I think, has been very fortunate. I think a lot of this technology was developed here at Harvard through the generosity of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they've been a very strong pr uh, proponent of this technology and are actually um, working on a field test right now. I think that might be the next slide. There you go, perfect tee up. So uh, DFA is actually right now uh, for the same liver function that I mentioned before. They're actually deploying that technology now as a field test in Vietnam. And so this liver uh, function issue affects approximately 8 million people, uh, according to the foundation, uh, globally uh, in these sorts of environments. So they have a 700-person test that they're doing uh, at a hospital in Ho Chi Minh. So thank you very much, Alok. I think it was uh, a, a great job of bringing something to life there that is very different to all the examples we talked about and hopefully uh, responded to some of the feedback I got in the last uh, session that we obviously wanted to address that. So the last thing I want to do here is just to say that actually all of this is great on paper or on PowerPoint, but it's really nothing to do with the technology at the end of the day. It's to do with you. And what I mean by that is that the best value propositions get developed by people who are uniquely able from their background or their experience to come up with some insight that advantages them in addressing the problem and providing a solution which they are passionate about and that ultimately they believe in for their reasons they can deliver in a, dis, um, a discontinuous innovation or in some kind of a disruptive business model. So what I want to do at this point is just appeal to you all and say, look, every one of you probably is here for a reason. And no matter what I've said tonight, believe in yourself, because I've seen incredibly unlikely stories turn into great companies because of the entrepreneur's conviction in their own understanding of a problem. If you have that and you have the belief and you have the passion and persistence to go after it. Everything I've said tonight will just be a framework that will drop away into the distance as you succeed in building a business. So thank you very much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. I just wanted to end by thanking uh, the team from Aperion and Akiban and uh, discussed in form of Rick from Alok from DFA and of course the UTES group. So thank you very much, you guys.